You're listening to El Clásico, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España from Barcelona to Madrid. Today we're in Oliva. You are indeed listening to El Clásico. My name is Daniel Freiber and I'm the host of this episode of the cycling podcast at the Vuelta a España. I am in Oliva. Now, tonight we're going to dispense with the usual frivolity at the top of the show because, as a lot of you will have seen, uh, the race today ended on a, well, on a worrying note in the sense that Timon Aronsman, the Ineos Grenadiers rider, was taken to hospital after a nasty crash five kilometers from the finish of the stage and we are awaiting news of him and his condition at the moment. Hopefully, hopefully, we'll get some good news during recording tonight. Joining me to discuss what we saw today, all of what we saw, the good, the bad, and the very worrying, as I've just said, is Brian Nygaard. Brian, how are you? I'm good, Daniel. Thank you. And thank you for going in that direction. It's always, uh, it's not a great situation to be in for anyone being close to a rider who's crashed. And I think it's good that we respect the lack of information that we have as of now. Well, Brian, let's give the tiny bit of information that we do have, in fact. Um, Ineos Grenadiers aren't commenting at the moment, or they're not giving, or they haven't yet given a detailed update on Timon Aronsman's condition. Steve Cummings, the Ineos Grenadiers direct sportif, did speak to the media briefly at the finish line here in Oliva, and he spoke not only about Timon Aronsman's crash, but also Geraint Thomas, who had had a nasty spill earlier in the stage but did finish safely albeit with a small time loss which we'll discuss in a minute so here's what Steve Cummings said this evening in Oliva he's in the ice bath he hit his knee really hard and initially yeah it looked really bad um, he was able to get going and um, I haven't really seen him but yeah he looked at the finish he looked like he was moving much better like with 50k to go he felt a little yeah he's a bit nervous um but yeah, he's come round and then obviously Tyler has crashed there with six kids around. Brian, so not much information there yet. As I said, hopefully we'll get some good news later on in the episode. And it was a strange, it was a somber mood at the finish line, certainly around the Ineos bus, understandably. And it was, a, you know, often at bike races you get these odd juxtapositions because almost by definition, someone else is ecstasy means another team's agony that's usually in the sort of banal event of a sprint finish where you always get a winner and a loser and today obviously we had uh, a lot of concern around Ineos bus and elation around the Total Direct Energy bus because they certainly did not come to the Vuelta today to the stage today expecting to take home a stage victory and circumstances inspired sorry conspired to give them that victory and well I think you're going to tell us more about that in the tale of the etapa El resumen de la etapa the tale of the etapa Brian what happened today Thank you Daniel so stage 7 of the 2023 Vuelta from Utiel to Oliva uh, 200.8 kilometers um, all around uh, the Valencia region finishing on the coastline so attack early attack from two riders jose errada 
riding his last season as a professional, now uh, still with Cofidis, and Ander Okamika from Burgos Biace. Went off from the start, um, got a decent gap, but I think everyone had an idea that this was going to finish in a, in a bunch sprint. Uh, first uh, early crash involved Karen Thomas, as you mentioned before, also his teammate Kim Heiduk, a German rider for Team Ineas Grenadiers, went down. Uh, both of them back on the bike again, as we heard from uh, Steve Cummings just before. So with 67 kilometers to go, Erada got caught, and 25 kilometers later, his best companion faced the same destiny. Uh, at uh, 31 kilometers to go, there was a, an intermediate sprint, and quite interestingly, well, as you would expect, Caden Groves won it, but interestingly enough, Jonas Wingergaard came in third and took two seconds. We can talk later about how to interpret that. There was the first big crash, rather big crash, was at 11k to go, putting in a bit of a scare in the GC context with five riders down, including Sepp Kuss, also Pierre Latour, and Yetzebal. Uh, then the next uh, big crash was at 5k to go, where Tim and Arendsman, uh was uh, down amongst other riders from 10, 15 riders down and he was taken away to hospital. Uh, it sort of changed the dynamics of the run-in to the sprint finish, basically derailing any possibilities for an organized sprint train to get into gear. It, it more looked like 25 riders being chased by a, a wild group of dogs, uh, everyone uh, in the same direction, but not very linear and organized. Jeffrey Soup of Total Energy won in front of Olois Aula from Carral, two rather unknown riders, and uh, the the joy was definitely felt from uh, Total, Total Energy and and Soup himself, who is a veteran leadout man, riding this, uh, and he's thirty five years of age. So a very big win for him, uh, and a very elated uh, atmosphere around that team. And that was pretty much it. Uh, the Sepkus got back, so he didn't lose any time. There wasn't any GC fluctuations uh, we need to worry about. The only just thing those uh, 24 seconds, Brian. Just those 24 seconds for Garrett Thomas that he lost. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, yeah, I agree. But how long are we still talking about Garrett Thomas as a GC rider in this world? I'm not trying to be facetious, but yeah, you tell me. I'm still one of the pre-race favourites and still considers himself very much part of the GC race I would suggest maybe not after today maybe not after today yeah. um, the injuries did look not serious they certainly weren't serious enough for him to pull out of the race and I expect to see him at the start tomorrow but it may well they may well hamper him in the coming days uh, they also it, he's he's tried crashing before and he's he's definitely also someone who always tries to get back up and and to be part of the interesting end of the race so yeah you couldn't ride you couldn't ride him out but there's there's definitely other riders more likely to be seen towards the podium than him at, at current so brian that concludes well the tale of the etapa as you said a very surprising victory for jeffrey super uh, one of those victories that seem to delight everyone um he's a guy who is certainly very popular in the french peloton less well known outside that sort of inner circle of French teams, certainly very recognisable and has been recognised, but he's been sporting this beard for some time, for several years, and not for his whole career. If you go back and look at pictures of uh, Geoffrey Soup from, for example, his time at what is now Krupama FDJ, um, he, he had quite, quite a different look about him um, back then, but it was just his third 
um, pro victory. No, in fact, it was his third pro victory this year. But exactly. The peculiarity, yeah, the peculiarity of uh, Jeffrey Soup's career is that he had previously only ever won at one race, and that was La Tropical Amisa Bongo, which is sort of the preserve of his current team, isn't it? I called them Total Direct Energy. I make that mistake all the time. They're, they're now known only as Total Energy, and they've had a lot of success in that race, uh, La Tropical Amisa Bongo. But certainly, certainly, he's never won anything as prestigious as the Vuelta stage that he took home for his and team quite today. The senior, um, also, the quite the senior that he's had in the Pro Peloton, or his first win in, uh, in La Tropical Amisa Bongo was in 2011. So... And then winning again this year with 12 years in between those two sole stage wins that he's had uh, in that race. Quite impressive, actually. And Brian, we're about to hear that Jeffrey Soup, well, he shouldn't really have had the opportunity that he did get today. He took advantage of a real sliding doors moment because he was supposed to be leading out Total Energy's nominal sprinter here, um, Dries van Hestel who got caught up in that same crash that brought down, well, among others, unfortunately, time and arrasment with five kilometers to go. And, yeah, we're going to hear how circumstances conspired to give Soup the opportunity that he took today. And we're also going to hear about another crash victim, or rather from another crash victim uh, in the finale. This one without any serious consequences. And he is yesterday's stage winner. Sepkus last seen glugging Carver from a rather large bottle. I don't know whether it was a Magnum bottle. At least a Magnum bottle. Um, Sepkus, as I said, um, he suffered no injuries in his crash in the finale today. And, well, presumably will be fighting to... Or in with a chance, at least. I'm not sure he'll be fighting to get the red jersey off Lenny Martinez's back tomorrow on the first of a bit of a sort of... Uh, mountain double header this coming weekend. So here they are, Dries van Hestel and Sepp Kuss. Uh, it was the corner uh, five kilometers from the finish. Uh, no, not the corner, uh, just a straight at five from uh, the finish. Uh, and I was behind uh, Robbie Hess uh, from Alpesin. Uh, and he hit the wheel uh, in front of him and yeah, he crashed and I couldn't break in time, uh, fell over him. And uh, yeah, Robbie was laying on, uh, under a couple of uh, bikes. So I helped him get the bikes off him. Um, but he didn't seem uh, he didn't seem too good, so I hope he's uh, he's okay. And you come back to the bus and you find out that uh, your teammate has won yeah. the stage, and it's a result that no one really expected. Yeah. Or, or did you? Yeah. Did you have a plan this morning for that? No, no, it was uh, unexpected. Uh, and also yesterday, uh, it was a hard stage. Uh, Joff was really really suffering. Uh, but no, I'm happy that uh, he was supposed to do the lead out for me, but. Uh, yeah, I lost this wheel at Lasca, uh, uh, the corner at six from the finish. He went left, I went right, and uh, yeah, we crashed on right. So uh, he went left. Uh, he didn't saw me on uh, the wheel. Uh, I think also he heard uh, he heard on the radio that I crashed, and uh, then he he decided to do uh, his own thing. So which is good, uh, fast thinking, I, I think. Uh, so yeah, it's good. I'm happy. And uh, well, and just finally, he's a guy who's been in the peloton for a long time. I think he's pretty well liked and. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he's won one race before, the Amisa Bongo. He won a yeah. stage in the Amisa Bongo. So it feels like a kind of reward for his whole career. I mean, everyone, yeah. I guess, is delighted for him. Yeah, yeah, we're all, uh, we're all happy for him. He's a good, uh, he's a good guy. Uh, he's a um, gentle, gentle guy. Yeah, I, I had a feeling it would be a bit like that. It was pretty easy all day. And, uh, you know, on the big roads with uh, narrowings and roundabouts, 
uh, can always be uh, sketchy. So uh, luckily, we all stayed out of trouble. And in a way, you're also thinking about your GC time now. You got something else to think about. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's not the nicest pressure to have, but uh, no, I tried and stay, uh, tried to stay relaxed during the stage and just be up there when when I needed to be. And you skirted the other crash at 5K. Yeah, just barely. <laughs> Used up all my luck today. Thanks. Seb, Jonas taking the bonus seconds there. Was that something that was talked about this morning? Uh, no, but I think, you know, the way, where they're located, a lot of the time the break doesn't make it uh, that far. So, um, uh, yeah, if, it's all just about positioning. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's good that he took some seconds. Seb, had you sobered up this morning after, after the hijinks on the podium yesterday? Yeah, it took me a while. I, I was still burping uh, champagne today, to be honest. So, need to take some uh, some heartburn medicine and <laughs> calm the bubbles. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2023 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. I am driving to the finish now. I had to go uh, to a meeting yesterday. Uh, I'm just coming back right now. Well, town of 25,000. Uh, I've lived there a while. The other, fa other fact there is Navadaskis. Ramunas from Navadaskis lived there, used to live there. Kozanovalovis has an apartment there as well. Uh, beautiful beachside town. There's two parts of town. There's the old part of town. And then there's the beach part of town. Uh, what else? What else? Beautiful white beaches. A couple of good restaurants. And not too much else, mate. It's a little, little beautiful little pocket of the old Mediterranean. Well, Brian, that was a very familiar voice. Our good friend, Matt White. Um, I'm sort of welcoming us to Oliva, as discussed, I think, last night. I was hoping he would welcome us into his um, palatial dining room. Um, he and, and that he would have been breathing a sigh of relief that you are not on the ground here in Oliva, or, or at least his wine cellar would have been breathing a sigh of relief, um, because I can imagine some fun could have been had there. But Matt White, he did, he did, no, he no. did drop in. He did drop in on the finish. It was another tough day for them. Unfortunately, they are, are really down to the bare bones. Um, and their young German, Felix Engelhardt, he was caught up in one of the crashes in the finale. And I saw him uh, as he came, as he made his way towards the Jacob bus. He was he was battered and bruised. Um, but Brian, it was one of those days where standing on the finish line in itself gave good insight, I would say, into why we saw an unusual sprint. Um, the wind was sort of howling. You can probably still hear it now. It was howling and it was swirling. It was moving around a lot. And when we did take up our position on the finish line, it was pretty obvious that the, the riders were going to have a tailwind and quite a strong tailwind. Um, it was certainly three-quarter tail for the last 300 metres. And it was also quite significantly, well, significantly for a bunch, well, for a uh, finishing straight um, on a, on a flattish stage. It was quite severely downhill as well. What did that do? Well, it meant that whoever really was first to the trigger and who the rider who accelerated out of that last left-hand corner was going to be very difficult to catch, and that is what we saw, isn't it, more or less? Isn't it great to be a leader, man? Because that's that's what you need to do, isn't it? So he just he rode as if he uh, it was business as usual, but it, it turned out to be the the winning formula. 
And Brian, as we heard Van Hestel say in the clip, I mean, just the sort of serendipity of uh, uh, two riders who were supposed to kind of stick together, one going one way around a corner or one on one side of the road. I don't know whether it was a corner or a roundabout. Van Hestel said a corner. The other going the, the other way and losing his sprinter and that having potentially sort of career-defining consequences for Jeffrey Soup. Je- Jeffrey Soup is a guy who would have retired, you know, with a very sort of dignified, um, uh, long career, many, many years of service, but certainly without the, the, the big cherry, the big juicy plump cherry on the cake um, that he was able to, well, decorate that particular gateau with this evening. Yeah, um, in, you know putting a big bracket on the circumstances of, of how the finish played out. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's great to see when, when someone like that, at that late part of his career, can win something that big that will basically crown every single year that he's had in the sport, you know, um, with, without direct comparison. But when you think of uh, Matt Heyman's win in Paris-Roubaix, after having done that race some 15 times and being relatively close to the, the, the end of his career, there's, there's something in it, I think, that any rider, unless it's the guy who finished second or third, will, will cherish and, and understand the value of. Uh, there's, there's a lot of beautiful elements to those types of stories. And uh, it doesn't happen often, obviously, because it's so competitive and this is a grand tour stage. Brian... Um, we've mentioned the crashes, and there were a few of them. Um, I was I was sort of relieved, really, when Caden Groves, in his interview after the finish, where he he sort of um, he exonerated the organisers on this occasion, sort of said it wasn't necessarily a, a dangerous finish. Um, he actually criticised the Cajarural, the Venezuelan rider, or Luis uh, Aular, for the way he'd ridden, um, particularly around the last corner, I think, and of course. Caden Groves lost a big part of his lead-out train in the finale. He lost Robert Hayes and he also lost Eddie Plankart, I think, to a, a crash. Um, but I think there were some riders who felt that it was a dangerous finish. Um, Sepkus also alluded to the fact that it had been one of those fairly quiet days and he felt that something consequently was brewing. Trouble was brewing and we saw quite a bit of trouble. I mean, just watching from your vantage point, the overhead shots and so on, I mean, how technical and how gnarly did it look to you? Well, a couple of things is that uh, it, it's, these uh, elements tend to multiply themselves. And I think it was that nervousness started somewhat earlier. It didn't seem like there were, I mean, I know it's windy. I can, I can see it from where you're sitting. But there, there was a nervousness to the finish of the stage way earlier than the crashes came in. And it's quite often when uh, you come to, a, a, I mean, it's not like Oliva is a big town, but it's part of a rather big grid uh, of that uh, coastal area. And that, that also means a lot of big roads that turn into narrow roads, narrower roads and fur, uh, road furniture and things like that. And we oftentimes when we see crashes in the welter, it's, it's, it's on those exact stages. And... The combination of a lot of sprinters seeing, uh, or a lot of fast men seeing their options becoming a lot more realistic given the lineup in this race, and because of the GC alertness that there needs to be at any given stage, uh, these, these situations multiply their level of dangers just like that. I don't think the, 
the run-in or anything in that part of the architecture of the finished estate really caused for it to be, I guess, could, uh, it, it, you, you couldn't really criticize the organizers for it. It's just uh, unfortunate circumstances when, when people are nervous and when, when everyone wants, needs to be at the front. And I don't think the stage as such was particularly difficult and crash-prone as, as any you know, fast finish can be dangerous and crash-prone. And you know the first the first crash, for instance, it was a it was a rider. A lot of people, a lot of riders went down because there was a crash that that basically cut through the middle of the peloton. And the the the, the, the really gnarly crash at five to go was because someone rode on the back wheel of an of a teammate, you know, trying to get organized for the sprint. That doesn't really got nothing to do. There's nothing you can read in the road book that would you know, make you any wiser to avoid that type of situation. I think. Yeah, it's it's a strange race this welter in terms of the sprinting field. We've talked before about how there aren't big lead-out trains, well-established lead-out trains, well-practiced lead-out trains. I mean, there's one, Alperson de Kerning. There are an awful lot of very young riders in the race, and in those sort of last 10 kilometers, it has the feel of a much smaller sort of stage race. You know, sometimes we hear big established world world tour pros complain about you know the the sort of heterogeneous nature of the peloton and how you know there's a there's a big disparity between the 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 abilities of the riders in the peloton and at times it's looked a little bit like that and the welter the welter under normal circumstances normal welters are a little bit sort of by definition i always think a bit safer than the tour de france because mm, partly because the level isn't as high, there's a bit less road furniture in Spain, and there isn't quite the fight for positions, there isn't quite the fight for positions on the part of the GC teams either. Um, but it, it, it is making a bit of a volatile mix um, in this world. I think, well, we haven't got a sprint finish for a few days now, and the sprint finishes, the few sprint finishes we do see from now on in, I think will probably be uh, a little bit less fraught than the last couple have been. And Brian, before that sprint, we saw another sprint, and we saw your countryman, Jonas Vingegaard, um, carrying the torch for the GC riders in that intermediate sprint. That was a bit of a surprise for me. Was it for you? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the next two days will reveal a lot more about... Um, Maybe or maybe not, but there's a potential for the next couple of stages to reveal a lot more about who is the stronger of the the three very strong guys at, at Jombo Visma. And those two seconds are really, I mean, the only benefit could really be that if he edges any closer, he'll have a better starting position than the TT after the rest day. I don't know if that would give him anything to sprint for. The, uh, uh, it could be that there aren't any major differences between him and Roglic after, after those two stages. And then once again, the TT will have a big say on it. But I think, you know, looking at how Evanepoel would, would try, I mean, it didn't today for one reason or another. Uh, you might as well pick up the easy seconds if you can. And if those were easy seconds for uh, for Vingegaard, I, I guess it would make sense for him. You know, bike riders, most of them at least, are quite rational in how they spend their energy. So if they think, oh, with a small, tiny effort, I can gain a couple of seconds. Well, why not? I mean, as we saw, as we saw at the end of the Giro, you know, and Roglic will tell them all about it. It, you know, it, 10, 15 seconds can eventually mean a lot. It might, it might, or it might be completely irrelevant. So maybe, maybe that was what he was trying to, you know, why not take those seconds? Brian, I think that just about sort of 
cleans everything up, um, ties most of the loose ends from today's stage. We still are awaiting news of time and arrangement, of course. Um, but as you can imagine, Brian, the, there was a lot of well, there, were, there were a lot of people sort of still debriefing this morning from yesterday's stage. And what I think, I mean, as we watched it, we, we realised that it was a great stage. I think had we had TV coverage from kilometre zero, we would have been talking about yesterday's stage in the same way that we're talking about some of the great transitional stages in the Tour de France this year. Um, we, we couldn't quite believe our eyes at times in the Tour de France this year, about how aggressive the racing was in the first hour, two hours. And we had a bit of that yesterday, but the race was quite settled by the time the line broadcast started but you you felt that riders were still almost shell-shocked after yesterday and well we'll talk a little bit about that now and we're going to hear from a few riders and well let's kick off with a very familiar voice on cycling podcast and El Clasico of Welta coverage let's check in with everyone's favorite American most people's favorite American the Motown Maestro Arriba, Larry Warbas. Andale, andale. Larry, I thought we could geek out a little bit on just how horror awful yesterday was. Um, spit some numbers at me and the listeners to put into perspective how difficult yesterday was, if you can. Yeah, I mean, I would say even it was less about numbers. It was just like unreal hard. Uh, so, you know, it was a big fight for the break, which everyone expected, but I think. Um, no one expected uh, so many like uh, favorites to go up the road, and you know so many guys from Jumbo. And uh, uh, well, the thing was was like, so yeah, already it was a really big fight. Everyone was a bit on the limit, and then we hit this climb, and then yeah, I don't know. It was like um, a few guys went, a few guys more went, and then like everyone was just on their limit at the top, and then it was just like if anyone had legs, they were going across, you know. And, uh, yeah, we had two guys in there, and I don't know, when I looked, I was like, wow, there's no way that, like, they can let this go, because, you know, I saw, like, Soler go, I saw, you know, all these jumbo guys, I was like, surely, you know, we're going to have to close this down, and i got to be ready for the next one. And then, all of a sudden, we quickly realized that that wasn't coming back, uh, at least very quickly. I mean, how, uh, what was Sudal Quickstep's sort of attitude at that point, and why didn't they bring it back straight away? Oh, I don't think it was an attitude. I think it was, uh, yeah, they weren't able to. You know what I mean? If they would have had six guys up there, uh, you know, ready to ride, sure. But, you know, I mean, okay, well, they had two guys in the break. But then in the group with us, there was maybe Ramco had one or two guys uh, at the start, you know. So uh, the problem was, yeah, the, uh, you can't do anything. One or two guys against 30 of the strongest guys in the race. And um, so, yeah, they quickly got... A lot of minutes and uh, and then we were just riding full behind and that was also not helped by the fact that it was pretty exposed and there was kind of like a cross-ish wind and uh, so we were just single file the whole day just sprinting out of every corner up and down like it was honestly it was probably among my 10 hardest days on the bike uh, which, yeah, you would have thought it would have been easier in the peloton than the breakaway, but uh, I think everyone out there had a really hard day yesterday. 
Did the numbers reflect that when you looked at the fires later on? So it was one of the hardest days you've, you've ever had. Um, I mean, the numbers wouldn't have said that it was like, you know, the hardest day. Uh, I think, yeah, normalized power, maybe I had 312 watts or something, which is hard, like very hard. But um, it's not, you know, maybe... You know, the numbers weren't so, so crazy, but I think the thing was, what made it harder was like, um, you know, there was no real long climbs, long descents, so there was nowhere to really recover. Uh, because, you know, if you're in the Giro, for example, and you do a 10K climb, then you have a 10K descent, then it's easy. Yesterday, it was kind of just like climbing almost the whole day, and it was like never, you know, a 5K climb. Well, aside from at the start, there were a couple climbs, but then most of the day was like, You'd go up, 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 but then it'd be like false flat downhill, so you'd still be going full gas, like pedaling uh, in the wheels. So, uh, so yeah, it was it was really, really hard. Before a Grand Tour, I guess you have in your mind vaguely a sort of graph of how your form is going to go over the, or how you, you want your form to go. Can a day like that sort of wreck that, and can it sort of create anxiety about, well, maybe I'll be that will finish me off, or it'll be difficult to recover from a day like that. Um, well, I mean, I guess yesterday you're always thinking, well, at least tomorrow should be easy, you know? Uh, and, no, I think the thing is you just kind of have to get stuck in the race, and it's the same for everyone. So uh, you can't be too worried about how that's going to really affect you. Um, because, yeah, you know, the hard thing is, though, you know, when you're in the race, you think you're the only guy who's suffering, you know, and you think, like, I can't keep doing this. And then all of a sudden you see, you know, 50 guys just swing out of the line. So... Uh, you realize that everyone's suffering. It's just there's a really, really high level. And, uh, yeah, the average level is super high in the race. Um, but, yeah, everyone's pretty close, I would say. David Goggins would have enjoyed it yesterday, I think. Uh, he would have loved it. Yeah, yeah, that's Merry what's going to say yesterday, yeah. <laughs> Merry <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> Well, Brian, that was quite a, well, it was a very detailed, visceral account from Larry. Um, in case anyone's wondering... It's almost like being yeah, there. Yeah, in case anyone's wondering about these David Goggins references, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, and um, we've explained this before. David Goggins is a former Navy, American Navy SEAL who's developed this cult following on, um, on social media in particular for his, shall we say, uncompromising attitude to life and motivation. And Larry's a big fan. Um, I'm a bit of a, he's a bit of a guilty pleasure of mine as well. So, um, yeah, that's what we were referring to um, just in the last bit of that. I was wondering, I was wondering about in, that. I didn't Google it. it. <laughs> yeah, in the last bit of that. Clip. It doesn't sound like anything for me. No, no, I don't Sorry. think it would be. I don't think it would be. Um, but yes, Brian, I mean... Uh, I think Larry did a good job there of putting into perspective how hard yesterday was and um, and and I think you know it, it was a day everyone talked we, we talked a lot about tactics yesterday evening but the more you spoke to riders this morning you, the more you realised that it was a test of of legs and it was a test of the two respective teams in particular Jumbo Visma if we if we think of this I don't think it is a two horse race or a two sort of team race but if you think about it in those terms I think it did shine a light on the big disparity um, between those two teams at this moment in time and it's exacerbated by the problems that Sudar Quickstep have had in recent days yeah and it's also you know when you see one team that wants to put in a lot of damage to a the entire team of their biggest rival or potential biggest rival you might not see the direct consequences of it i mean if if anyone had not seen 
what had happened yesterday and just saw, oh, uh, Remco Evenepoel maybe had a little bit of an off day and he only lost 30 seconds. That doesn't tell 5% of what actually happened. And as in any Grand Tour, whatever, whatever pain you'll inflict on your rivals now, even if it doesn't show on, on the GC and on the leaderboard, It'll, it'll have a consequence in the, later in the race, either for the captain or, or for their own riders who are trying to establish that kind of um, strength over them. So it'll have a consequence. And I mean, it had a consequence. Everyone was, you know, absolutely in the ropes yesterday, but it'll be felt way, way longer than, than just, you know, looking at the, at the GC after yesterday. Yeah, well, one sure. thing I didn't mention in the podcast last night was, well, what... what, what what we could see after the finish line and the way the riders looked. Now, there's a bit of sort of amateur, you know, body language analysis and sort of um, armchair, I'm, I'm sort of armchair diagnostics here. Um, however, I didn't mention yesterday that Remco was sort of shivering at the finish line yesterday. He was the only rider who, who I saw um, who was shivering, who looked cold. And I just did wonder about the illness in the team and, um, you know, whether maybe. He was starting to suffer. Um, One thing I also noticed was that it's the most pain I've seen on Jonas Vingegaard's face all year. When Roglic was really upping the tempo uh, once they rolled clear and once they dropped uh, Enric Mas, the, the, the expre facial expression of Vingegaard, I think that he, he developed new f uh, muscles in his cheek <laughs> to actually try and stay on Roglic's wheel, which was quite impressive. I mean, he did, he did do a turn after that, but he was, he was really, really in a lot of pain to, to stay on Roglic's wheel. And I think that was quite telling. Um, and we'll see, if not the next couple of days, but at some point we will see if, if, if Roglic... To me, it looks like Roglic is traveling a little bit better as, as it is. But then two days before, it didn't seem like it, you know, so... It's really a, it's a, it's a definitely a work in progress if you want to analyze the, the individual strength of the Jumbo Visma riders. Brian, just thinking about that contrast between the two teams and between the, the mood in the, the two camps, um, you know, Remco nominally he's still leading the sort of virtual general classification if you exclude Sepkus, but you do feel as though they are shipping quite a bit of water at the moment, Sudar Quickstep, because of the problems that are. Um, of no of no fault of their own, but because of the illness they've had, as against Jumbo Visma, who okay, we know Jonas Vingard, or we think he's had some of the some of the same problems. We he had one or two days of illness um, earlier in the world, so he seems to have weathered that. But there's a sense in that team that they are riding this wave of euphoria, of th this sort of well, sense of infectious um, confidence. And, and that is really, well, I call it infectious. That's really sort of um, seeping into even the, the sort of areas of the team and riders in the team who are, for example, Attila Valta is riding his first Grand Tour um, as a support rider to Jonas Vingegaard and Primoz Roglic. He's ridden Grand Tours before, but not with such an important role. And um, just to underline that, contrast i thought it'd be interesting to hear from well our audio diarist james knox who sent in a, an entry presumably when he was on the massage table last night or and um, when they'd got back to the team hotel last night and attila valter who i spoke to in utiel this morning and uh, well he was still as they say in footballing parlance buzzing after a fantastic day for jumbo visma yesterday so here they are knox and valter 
We had a, a hectic start, lots of attacks, kept going and going and going. And not really an ideal situation for us, but not a disaster anyway, even if it was a big chase. We did have two guys up the road. But of course, Jumbo had uh, many top riders. Soler was in there. Martinez, who took the red jersey. Chapeau to him. Fuck it, he's doing a fantastic, fantastic volta for a young guy. Um, and then from there, yeah, it was a bit of a... All that battle, wasn't it? Um, flat out for the first hour and a half. And then a little bit of hesitation. I'm not sure exactly what happened, but I think there was a crash in the start somewhere when the big group had gone. There was also a big group behind. Um, so we waited for a couple of our guys. And then, yeah, Seri and Pedersen got to work pulling. And we got some help from Ineos, a movie star. And to be honest, I didn't really know what I was going to be doing. But with how hard... Those guys pulled, um, I took over and tried to do the last bit, but to be honest, I was probably just slowing us down there in that headwind draggy valley down to the last climb. And I was suffering as well, I was really suffering, I was sort of going backwards. I felt like I was going backwards. Um, and then I got out of the way, groveled up the last climb. Um, I was pretty I was pretty spent, to be honest. And of course, Remco, as most of you have seen, lost a bit of time to his uh, main GC rivals, as, long, as well as the guys in the break, so down to 10th now, um, but by no means a disaster. You'll take that if that's his bad day. We just have to hope that's his bad day, I guess. For the rest, we did lose Bagioli today, which is a big loss. Very talented guy, a very good bike rider in terms of all the managing breakaways, being in the front, jumping, positioning, all that sort of stuff. He's a, yeah, he's a fantastic, uh, typical Italian. He knows all that stuff like the back of his hands. So. Big loss to lose him. Myself feeling better. Can't be disappointed with the legs I had today after not being 100% the last couple of days. But yeah, good fun, what it's all about. To be honest, I quite enjoyed it. Quite enjoyed feeling like I was uh, getting a good old kick in, you know, that sort of in the thick of the action, suffering, thriving. Guess it's why we do it, so uh, can't complain. One of my best days on the bike so far. It really, to be part of this team is already, it's, it's a privilege, but uh, yeah, really making on the move and, and really uh, deciding what will happen in the race, it just feels so nice. And uh, yeah, we were four in the break, four in the in the group, uh, in, the, in the main bunch, and then we were really just uh, having a perfect plan. We executed it perfect, and uh, I was a huge fight for, uh, for an hour, and uh, I was already part in many breakaways, but uh, was, was not gone. And then in the end, was just everyone reached the limit after one hour. We, we really, I had the intensity factor one at one hour, so you cannot go deeper than that. And um, I think half the bunch felt that for sure. And then we just stopped at one climb, uh, and then there was like three to go. Who, who still had the legs to to push just one more? Then we then he could go in the break. So we we formed that, and then still for like one one and a half hours we just kept attacking in that big group because there was no cohesion. So then we had to take the lead with uh, with Dylan and Jan and me try to, to control it and uh, and set the pace so we just stop attacking each other because yeah I think two and a half hours was non-stop attacking for us so we really we were really wasted when we when we reached the bottom of the climb I think everyone so it's still impressive that uh, Sepp managed to to save so much and the, the likes of Lenny Martinez he also raised it smart because he still had the legs in the end. 
Is Seb still drunk or is he sober this morning after all that? I mean, uh, I don't think he, he drank too much. It's just that he's, uh, he's, a, he's a lightweight climber after a five hours stage in the sun. So I think uh, if I would even smell a bit of uh, uh, champagne, then I would, I would get drunk. So yeah, he, he said he, he felt it a bit, but uh, uh, for him who is helping so much, it's a moment when he really deserves it. So yeah, we were super happy for him. Well, Brian, what do you think the general classification is going to look like at the end of the weekend? Without, without talking in too much detail about the well tomorrow's stage yet, because we're going to do that in a minute, but just um, having heard from Attila Valter, James Knox, thinking about the two respective teams, give me a prediction, please, before we move on to something else. Uh, my prediction is that whomever is leading the GC after the weekend is not the overall winner of the Welter. So that's the real a, GC, the real yeah. GC, or the GC that we've all got in our heads, um, which is currently led, well, well, the one, the, currently led by Remco Evenepoel. Oh no, I mean the the real GC. Whomever has the jersey after the weekend is not the winner of the overall World in Madrid, is what I meant. Hmm. hmm. Because I think I mean those are the the two distinctively different mountain stages, right? One is is a very very finishes at a very short sort of mm. wall climb type of finish and the other one is not particularly hard unless accumulating accumulated fatigue will have its say and I'm not, I'm not sure about that and I think that the time gaps of the the riders who are in the real GC compared to the virtual GC are still so significant that I think the real real GC Madrid GC riders will not be able to make that take time out of those riders who are in front of them because there are some good climbers there. So uh, that, that's my prediction. It's going to be fascinating to see how Lenny Martinez does over the next couple of days. And um, Brian, yesterday I promised, I, well, I, I talked a little bit, I sort of teased uh, a few sort of stories about his father, um, Miguel Martinez, the former mountain biker. And well, I was just doing some reading this morning or today about Miguel Martinez and his kind of crazy life story. And it's, to be honest, it's difficult to know where to start. It's difficult to know how to wrap one's arms around this story. Um, there was a fantastic piece about him in a French magazine called Pedal a few years ago. And, well, some of the sort of highlights, notable kind of bullet points I've made. Um, his dad used to often take him to race his dad of course Mariano uh, Martinez who was a former king of the mountains in the Tour de France and um, his dad would often take take Miguel so that's Lenny's father to races and, and he'd make him pay for petrol but he'd kick him out of the car 50 kilometers from the start of the race and make him ride to the start to warm up um, Miguel also reported spending many nights in the forest just sleeping in the forest near their house um neither of his parents he said knew where he was or what he was doing um by all accounts he had a bit of a wild upbringing and um and then his life just got more and more sort of wild sauvage as the french say um his parents while he was sort of enjoying his great success as a mountain biker and won the olympic mountain bike gold medal in sydney in 2000 his parents so that's mariano uh, King of the Mountains, former King of the Mountains of the Tour de France. They didn't let him have access to any of his bank accounts. He had no idea how much he was earning. Finally, he sort of rebelled, this well into his 20s, and he, he went in search of the book where his parents had written everything down, um, and they'd lost, he found out that they'd lost tens of thousands of his earnings on, um, on shares in companies that had subsequently gone bust. 
um, all sorts of other all sorts of other um, vicissitudes that are difficult to get one's head around Brian carjacked in 2012 while in his Aston Martin attacked at knife point um, the attackers threatened to the robbers threatened to kill him and then in 2015 he was completely broke living in Marostica in Italy but still driving a Porsche um, and he's decided to invest in a plot of land um, which turned out to have been sold by him by the carjackers of a few years earlier Wow. And um, at this point, he was completely broke, and he was too embarrassed to admit it. But he was living on two euros a day, and spending those two, two euros on well, he was spending ninety nine cents of it on a bag of carrots from Lidl every single day, and cereal bars. And what and about lived, uh, the fuel for the Porsche? Well, yeah, and he lived like this for um, he lived like this for four years. Just an extraordinary, extraordinary story. And um, somewhere in all of this, Lenny was born, and. By, by most accounts, it seems that Lenny has a decent relationship with his father. Um, he said in the press conference tonight that he speaks to him, or he spoke to him last night. His dad congratulated him. And um, he, by comparison, seems to have had, well, he seems certainly very level-headed, and he gives no hint of having come from what most would consider to be a quite colourful background. Um, but Brian, uh, Lenny Martinez, how do you think he'll get on over the weekend? I think it's a it's a big ask to to see him in the leaders jersey after the weekend. If if he did, that would be absolutely sensational, regardless of what happens afterwards. Uh, but I, I'm 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 convinced he'll try. I think tomorrow will be a, a better possibility for his type of skills to keep it, depending on how it will be raised. But they'll be put under a lot of pressure, even if it's not from the from the two big GC or three big GC teams. There'll be a lot of pressure on on uh, on him. Um, yeah, he's been. I mean, not just because of what but that fact that he's in New Jersey, but it's been he's been a revelation, regardless of of this welter. I think you know there's there's a there's a bright future for him. There's something to build on, and he's still very young. Uh, most teams who have a rider like him in in this position at at this stage in his career will not put any pressure on him. Just say try do your best. Don't you know. Don't worry if you lose the jersey. Don't worry if you drop out of you know top eight, top ten. Uh, but he definitely will have a full team rallying around him to try and to try and do his best. So that's that's going to be a story in itself to see how he how he travels. And I'm sure your your French colleagues will follow it very closely yeah, on the ground mean, there. Yeah, I mean, I, I was speaking to well, a couple of his team members this morning. Uh, Rudy Molau. He's had the red jersey in the Vuelta on a couple of occasions, of course, and he's well, he, he's told me this morning that the team will certainly certainly try to keep the red jersey um, that is their priority in the short term more than the the, the position that Lenny Martinez is going to finish in in uh, Madrid um, I also spoke to Philippe Maudouy the director sportive at Groupama FDJ and well he, he confirmed to me that the team is thinking very much in terms of Lenny Martinez becoming a a GC contender in the future. Um, they've had a ride. They had a rider a few years ago who's at this welter actually, Kenny Elisander, who's a, of similar stature to Lenny Martinez. And I hate to keep coming back to his size, Lenny Martinez, but he's he's a a very light rider and he's um, he's not the tallest either. And in that respect, he doesn't really look like someone who might one day win Grand Tours because um, you would think that he will he will always suffer against the clock. 
But Philippe said to me, okay, Kenny hasn't gone on to become a Grand Tour contender, but we do think that Lenny, not Kenny, but Lenny, has the capacity to become that. Um, Brian, mm, it's very fashionable to be 20 years old and prodigiously talented at this Vuelta a España. There are three of them. Um, Juan Ayuso, certainly very much in the shake-up, very much in the mix to win this Vuelta a España overall. And who knows, there's another 20-year-old who could threaten the podium positions and even win this Vuelta a España. Um, he's Belgian, his name's Kian Uterbrooks, and he rides for Bora Hansgrohe. And he impressed us greatly yesterday, didn't he? Because he talks about having crashed, he had a difficult day, and yet he still, still finished hot on the heels of Primoz Roglic and Jonas Vingegaard et al. We heard from Rolf Aldag, his direct sportive, yesterday about Uta Brooks and why they'd brought him to the Vuelta, what's impressive about him, um, what's impressed my Belgian colleagues about Kian Uta Brooks at this Vuelta, um, among other things, is how happy he is. He is the, he is the smiliest, sunniest, face in the mix zone every morning he's and, definitely well, he's not a hangry type of rider either is he no, <laughs> like imagine no. eating that little and be that cheerful both you and i can can learn something from that y yes and brian i thought i'd find out this morning why he's having such a great time at this vuelta España. um he is the subject of our encuentro del día our meeting of the day um i had a bit of a technical malfunction brian in the first 50 seconds or so of this interview um i had to had to borrow the audio of one of my Belgian colleagues, hence why it's slightly substandard. Not because Belgians don't know how to record interviews, but um, I, my professional recording equipment did malfunction. Anyway, here he is, Kian Uterbrooks in UTL this morning. El Encuentro del Día. The meeting of the day. Yeah, yeah, it has been pretty nice till now. Also pretty challenging with uh, the first days in the wet. And then yesterday I was in a crash in the beginning of the race. So, uh, yeah, like yesterday I was not smiling so much. But in the end, yeah, like uh, I was feeling still okay on that last climb. Like in the beginning I was really feeling bad, I say. Yeah, I will drop here like after 2k of climbing. Uh, but then, uh, you know, I came through the, the bad moments and... Uh, Finally, I felt good and could manage still to, to be uh, next to the GC opponents. So, uh, yeah, then I was anyway smiling again at the line. <laughs> the Welt is always an explosive race and you're up against some very explosive riders, Roglic, Remco. That's not really your what you like, is it? No, that's also still a little bit my deficit. Like, time trial we need to work on an explosivity. and. Uh, yeah, I think like stages as a Tourmalet is really still better for me. But for example, also yesterday, yeah, I think me and I used to get flicked a bit with uh, Jumbo, with Roglic, who attacks explosive and Vinegard has it also a bit. And uh, we are a bit slower and uh, yeah, that, that's where we lose those 10, 10 20 seconds, let's say. So uh, yeah, we need to try to manage it over the next uh, mountain stages to, to maybe in the longer climbs uh, get it back. <laughs> And yesterday I spoke to Rolf Aldag and he said one of the amazing things about you is that you don't mind weighing your food. You've been doing that for a long time. You know, you're very, very disciplined. It doesn't seem to weigh on you. And I thought about um, Juan Ayuso a couple of weeks ago. He gave this interview where he said he has four days in the year where he can eat what he wants to eat. Tell us, does it weigh on you living this life? 
um, and being so disciplined? No, not at all. It gives me just more confidence in the head if I can measure my nutrition and and uh, yeah, being focused, doing my training properly. Like for me, it's just like mentally, I'm I'm happier if I can do it than if I can't. So. Uh, I think there I have a little bit more the same uh, lifestyle as I used to then probably. Um, like, yeah, I measure also just always everything. And uh, yeah, that's just what makes me happy. And if I can say at the end of the day that I did my job properly, I, I'm really happy. <laughs> when you see friends your age, 20-year-olds, eating a hamburger, what do you think? Do you think, well, not for me? Or do you think, mm, Oh, I'm living my dream, so uh, yeah, they're living their life. So, uh, so let's say that I'm I'm really happy with uh, with how it goes for me, and and uh, it doesn't has has an impact actually on me. I'm just happy about how I can do it, and and I look up to like all the riders who are really disciplined, like Chris Froome in the past and those guys. So uh, yeah, for me, it's then just like try to become as them and that's also one step to get that like nutrition and everything uh, properly so uh, yeah for me it's really no problem so brian can utterbrook's not the most explosive rider in the vuelta um as we heard him say there but but probably the happiest and one of the most impressive up until now and well just hearing him sort of almost mock his own lack of explosiveness and thinking about the finishes we've had so far and seeing how he's done notwithstanding that, it gets me excited about the rest of his Vuelta España. Yeah, and luckily, luckily for him, he's not the, you know, he, he's, he's flown under the radar significantly because of um, Rimpo Evenepoel. Because normally, let's, if, you know, when a, when a young Belgian rider wins the Tour de Lavenir and turns pro, you know, you basically have, you have the paparazzis sleeping on your doorstep. In, in at least in certain parts of Belgium, so I think he's it's, it's almost been a good fortune for him that he's there's there's another one stealing all his thunder, but you 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 gotta love his attitude. I mean, what a you know, and also someone who's who's been proved to be so strong and so consistent already is is talking about how Tumale suits him better than. Than the finish tomorrow and those other like really steep ramps, I yeah that that type of optimism, regardless of like his ability to recuperate or, you know how how his numbers are, just by by his sheer attitude is going to bring him very far in in this race I think, but also in the sport. What a joy to listen to. I, I, again, again, sort of self mockingly, I think he told one of my Belgian colleagues today or yesterday that he thought he needed. He needed a 1,000-kilometer climb in order to be able to drop Primoz Roglic <laughs> yeah. and Remco Evenepoel and those much more explosive riders. And Brian, unfortunately, tomorrow he's going to have to be explosive because we've got explosive ramps on the final climb. You're going to tell us about them now. La etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Yeah, Daniel, so tomorrow is, a, is one of those stages that we can really look forward to. It's, it's short. But it's definitely sweeter to watch than it is to to ride. The it's undulating all the way. A lot of category two, a lot of category three, and if, even if it doesn't finish uphill, the last climb, the category one climb to Jorge de Cati, is I think it's a neo classic in in the welter context. It's really a, a climb that has already accumulated a bit of a story, and it's it's steep enough to even if it's not very long, it's steep enough to to 
make a lot of even the best better climbers suffer significantly. And uh, with things being so close and in those two different types of uh, GC that we're talking about, it, I think we're in for a real show tomorrow. Might not make the biggest uh, impact on the GC for the GC GC guys, but it'll definitely it'll sort out some of the contenders uh, in the second half of top yeah, seven, eight, I think. Brian, last night's dinner was unremarkable. It was um, it was sort of rural Spanish fare, um, but we were very grateful for it because we arrived very late at our hotel in the back of beyond. I must say, some of the teams I think are pretty unhappy with some of the hotel arrangements, particularly yesterday. They had a long drive to the coast, back to sort of Valencia, and then they had to come back way back inland to the stage start in well, very interesting wine country, Utiel uh, Requena. Brian, though, the drive that we had last night was absolutely jaw-droppingly spectacular um, from the summit in well, the Havalambre summit to a place called Talahuelas, which was, well, it's in the province of Cuenca in Castilla-La Mancha and just sort of sweeping gorges, really, you know, huge towering sweeping gorges, um, sort of virgin forests, absolutely spectacular. I called it um, Empty Spain, uh, La España Vacía in yesterday's podcast, but it was it's a, a, a fabulous playground for someone like me, Brian, who, as you know, likes to get into the wild and likes to go, as I, as I call it, wild horse. And of not, a morning, and, and for not example, have any neighbors. Yeah, not have any neighbors. But I'm just, I, can I just briefly touch upon, because this, I believe now, is the second night in a row where you had a pretty substandard, well, not knowing your standard when you're, when you're, whenever you're actually at home. I, I, there's a planning element to this that, I, that disappoints me a little bit, Daniel. <laughs> okay. um, well, I, I, struggle with the, I struggle with the seafood. Obviously, I don't eat seafood, don't eat meat, so it doesn't leave a whole lot left. Brian, but it sounds like, out of, out of, like you could go foraging out on those planes and you'll have a better meal than whatever you can find at the hotel. Well, maybe I'll try that. Pull maybe the car over and like, get a basket. You, you'll find me in tomorrow's podcast reporting back on uh, the, the pine cones and acorns that I've foraged on my morning run. Some of the best um, restaurants in, in the world have like, you know, three-star Michelin menus with those ingredients. There Come we on. go. There we go. Brian, tomorrow we'll be in the province of Alicante. Um, you'll be joining me again in a couple of days. Look forward to that. Uh, enjoy the weekend's action. And... Um, at the time of recording, at the time of closing the episode, unfortunately, we don't have any news of time in Aronsman, but um, everyone keep their fingers crossed that when we do get news, it will be good and reassuring news. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you, Daniel. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb and Lionel Burney.